and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 428, Churchill's Shell Game. Last time, after Operation Rudder was canceled or delayed or whatever, people like Admiral Bertram Ramsey, a hero of the Dunkirk evacuation, spoke up against renewing it. His arguments were direct and poignant. Yes, we learn as we conduct these raids, but so too does the enemy. We exploit a weaknesses in the enemy's line for a limited objective, but he has just learned where he needs to shore things up. Not a fair exchange. But the Admiral's words, wise though they were, were drowned out by all the noise around the Prime Minister. Churchill was politically weak at home and abroad. After all, on July 8th, he had gambled much as he talked to the American president, specifically to say, we will be unable to keep our word. The prime minister told the president that London was unable to move forward on Operation Sledgehammer, certainly in its current form. But if Washington wanted British action that year, that was still possible, but only in North Africa. And Churchill put it in a way as to suggest it was partly FDR's idea. In part, the Prime Minister wrote, This has all along been in harmony with your ideas. In fact, it is your commanding idea. Here is the true second front of 1942. Here is the safest and most fruitful stroke that can be delivered this autumn. And indeed, those words were from the President. Fortunately for the anxious Prime Minister, FDR and Harry Hopkins were coming round to American action in North Africa. After all, it was relatively safe, starting further away from Hitler's stronger units, but it would not be a cakewalk to change the Americans' military stance at this point. And in way of this change, front and center, was General George Marshall, Secretary of War Henry Stimson, and Chief of the Army Air Forces General Hap Arnold. Their response in a letter to their leader was, We attack Germany, or we tell London that the Pacific will become our number one priority. But FDR would not allow this, and for military reasons. As he told Marshall, if we focus on Japan, who has just been stopped at the Battle of Midway, Germany would be allowed to focus on Russia. And if Russia has to drop out of the war, well, the entire game would change, and not for the better. Thus, a proper but political wrestling match was set up between the Americans and the British. Fortunately for the latter, it would be held in London. On one side was Marshall and Chief of Naval Operations Admiral King, who was the equivalent of a political brawler, and Harry Hopkins. And General Eisenhower would be there, as he had come over in late June to take lead of the European theater operations. FDR had told them all before they left, push hard for a cross-channel invasion, but if that fails, find us a place to land American boys this year. And he knew that meant North Africa which, again, he was starting to see the value of. General Marshall tried and tried for two days, as he believed in Sledgehammer, but SIG's chief, Alan Brooke, would no be moved, and his argument, though shorter, was sharper and cut Marshall's argument to pieces. The RAF could not help due to range. The British could only land six divisions, which would be vastly outnumbered and wiped out. 
And if we get pushed out after a major effort, who then will have the political courage to try again in a few years? No, nothing major across the channel until there was a much better chance of it working, period. General Marshall agreed, but still tried to get London to agree to something like Sledgehammer for the following year. But the British had what they wanted, so they did not feel the need to give anything further away. FDR was pleased, but quietly so, for he realized better than Marshall of the politics intertwined in this war, in any war. So Churchill had won the battle, but he was still losing the war as there was continued pressure for a second front. Besides the usual suspects, the USSR and USA, Lord Beaverbrook was making a big stink as well. Canadian-born cement baron in Canada, soon Sir Maxwell Aiken, first Baron Beaverbrook, had purchased or established several British newspapers and was holding Churchill's feet to the fire. That Beaverbrook had been pro-appeasement before Munich and anti-communist before the war and was now on the opposite side of both issues was extraordinary. Almost losing a war will have that kind of effect on someone's outlook. So, Operation Torch, the invasion of North Africa, it would be. Which might make the Americans and British feel good, but it would not shift German troops out of the East. FDR and Churchill knew that, and knew that Stalin knew that they knew that. And as we have seen in a few weeks' time, Churchill would be sitting across the desk from the Man of Steel in Moscow to explain all this. Fortunately, Stalin grasped the soft underbelly metaphor used by the British leader. So, Jubilee was it, and combined ops had five weeks to get things ready, while maintaining absolute secrecy. Yet we've already seen that capital ships would not be used, nor a preliminary bombing raid. Next, the 1st Airborne Division was bowing out. Their list of complaints was legit, but seemed petty at the time. So instead, commandos would arrive by small boat and take out the batteries at Bern-Nouval to the east of Dieppe and var to the west. And again, all were to be in and out during the same tide. Keep it simple and hopefully avoid those panzers. But those were the only changes as Rudder morphed into Jubilee. Canadian Lieutenant Generals Andrew McNaughton and Harry Carrar, the two best known in their country, had been sidelined in running Rudder, but now they saw a chance to get back into it. McNaughton asked that Monty be cut from the chain of command, so now the new line of command would be General Paget, Home Forces, McNaughton, to Carrere, to Major John Hamilton Roberts, commander of the 2nd Canadian Division. Hence it would be Roberts, or Ham as he was called, to be in charge of the ground troops when they made landfall. Monty stepped aside with very little fuss. After all, he had recently said this should be canceled outright, as we had just shown our hand to the enemy. Not that it mattered, as he would soon be tapped for a command in North Africa. So now, Canadians would be involved in the planning, and as this would be the largest event before a true cross-channel attempt, reputations could be made here. And don't ever think that officers do not fantasize about such things. Point is, all or most involved now 
wanted Jubilee to go off and, of course, be successful. The phrase that best suits here is, the greater the risk, the greater the reward. Or rather, the greater the risk, the greater chance of failure, followed by death. Ham Roberts, again as he was called, kept asking for larger ships and for a bombing raid. He did not get them, but the Royal Navy would help clear two gaps in a newly laying German minefield where the ships were to get to Dieppe. By August 11th, the force commanders had agreed to the plant of Jubilee, and Roberts, given his new authority, requested the Canadian government to approve it, which it did. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at The plan would see five attacks from the Allies along a 13-mile front, from Bernouval to the east to Quiberville to the west. Supposedly, the landing craft would touch pebbles at 4.50 a.m., British summertime, or GMT, plus one. At this time, hopefully, there would still be enough darkness that the defenders would not know of the attacker's presence until the first shot was fired. 30 minutes later, the main body of the attackers would land directly in front of Dieppe. The plan broke down the coastline into sectors, so each group would know where they were going and what to accomplish. Going from right to left or east to west, because when the Allies approached, that would be their left to right. The first landing zone to be invaded was Yellow One Beach, just east of Bernouval. To their right or west was Yellow Beach 2, a mile away, closer to Berneval proper. These would be the landings of No. 3 Commando, and some of these men were to take out the large battery there, labeled Goebbels. 
Next, about 2 miles or 3.2 kilometers to the west, labeled Blue Beach, is where the Royal Regiment of Canada would land. While the landing was inside the Germans' defensive perimeter, it was still just east of Dieppe itself. The troops there would take out the guns that watched over the port and the beaches just in front of Dieppe. Next was Red Beach, one of the two landing designations that were to be right in front of the town. Here, the Essex Scottish would land, head in, but then spread out enough to meet up with the Royal Canadians further east. Next to Red Beach was White Beach, where the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry would land, move in, and help secure the area. Around this time, the Churchill tanks were expected to land and give support. Around 60 Churchills would be involved, and though all were known for climbing steep slopes, some of them would have flamethrowers, while others had canvas carpets, or bobbin, to help them move while on the beach. Once the tanks were on shore for added punching power, then the engineering teams would land and start destroying obstacles of whatever kind were found. Next was Green Beach, about two miles west of White Beach. Here, the South Saskatchewan Regiment would land, head in, and then to their left or east, meet up with the Rileys. After them would be the Queen's own Cameron Highlanders. They would land at roughly the same place, and as the tanks were expected to have taken the town by then, the Highlanders would have the way cleared for them to head due south of Dieppe and wreak havoc on the St. Ubin airfield. And if things went better than expected, they could also head towards the enemy's divisional headquarters at Ash Bitel to capture secret documents. Which leaves Oren Beach, but broken into two separate landings, one and two. Here at Orange 1, right in front of the town of Vastirilval, men of the number 4 commando would land. Beach designated Orange 2 would be a bit west of Beach Orange 1, but both groups would head towards the battery, labeled Hess. By the time this was all done, or even close to being done, Dieppe itself should have fallen. As such, the Les Fusiliers Montreal would land and set up a defensive perimeter just within the boundary of the town. And with that done, everything, anything of value, was to be destroyed. Bridges, factories, tunnels, food and petrol stores, but also the power station and telephone exchange. And while all this was going on, all tied to a tight time schedule, Commander Robert Ryder of the Royal Navy was to lead his own mission that would see the capture of some 40 invasion barges. Helping him would be 200 Royal Marines and seven Free French submarine chasers. But as the saying goes, in for a penny, in for a pound. So the men of this detachment would also try to grab Enigma machines and codes, if they could, while another group was to take pieces from an enemy radar station near Pourville, just west of Dieppe at Green Beach. So there it was, a plan of a raid, interconnected with itself, as in B couldn't happen unless A was successful, and on down the line. And there was little to no time for deviation, in case something took longer than expected. Or put another way, in a post-action report, one segment read, It will be seen at once that its success depended upon a number of factors of which 
Perhaps the most important was the correct and accurate timing of the successive phases of the operation by all services taking part in it. Synchronization was, in fact, its keynote. To be sure, Jubilee was not one overarching plan, but really several smaller plans or aims smashed together. They just happened to be sharing a taxi, if you will. As such, the commandos were allowed and encouraged to focus only on their objectives, which was perfect for number three commando leader John Dunford Slater. He ignored all the brouhaha and had his men practice cliff climbing and landings during the day and night. But if anyone did ask about the real target, well, Sledgehammer was still usable, so the answer was the Cherbourg Peninsula. So again, Dunford Slater was sure his men could take out the three 170mm and four 105mm guns on their shopping list. What he wasn't sure about was their particular taxi. Number three commando would be taken to Yellow One and Two Beaches on 23 small, American-designed and unarmored LCP, or landing craft personnel. Dunford Slater wasn't confident that his men would still be battle-worthy after a 67-mile trip, all the while being tossed about. Dunford Slater spoke up at the next meeting, certainly after confirming no preliminary aerial bombardment by saying, I was most doubtful of the Canadian success. Whereas it was the exact opposite for number four commander, Lieutenant Colonel the Lord Lovat, or Shimmy, as his friends called him. Simon Fraser, the 15th Lord Lovat, had it all. He was a Fraser warrior clan chief. He had the family castle near Inverness. He was rich, aristocratic, and good-looking. Still, on a professional level, he had trained his men hard, who loved him for it. For example, his two-inch mortar teams could land 18 out of 20 shots into a 25-foot square at 200 yards away. And they felt ready for almost anything. Almost. But a jaunty esprit de corps does not help one get over a bullet wound or if one's limb is blown off. Eagerness is a virtue, but so is planning for when things go wrong. So far, in terms of Jubilee, that wasn't happening. And then came something that should have stopped Jubilee in its tracks, but did not. As the raiding date came closer, more aerial reconnaissance photos were taken, and the ones on August 5th showed a new four-gun battery being built. And there were others, some completed, some not, but the approaches to Dieppe and further inland were covered now by even more German guns. German guns, but not necessarily German troops. As the war on the Eastern Front did not turn out to be a quick victory, Hitler had more and more men sent to the East. To replace them in the West, his officers chose men from conquered nations. The 571st Infantry Regiment was still defending Dieppe, but of the just over 600 new men, four-fifths of them were Poles, who had become naturalized Germans. Germans are Poles, and there were other nationalities. They were ready, and knew something was afoot. On July 7th, Rundstedt had the coastline on general alert, 
and his reason was direct enough. It is the most favorable period for Allied landings. And Hitler joined in with his own warning. Quote, the areas particularly threatened are, in the first place, the Channel Coast, between Dieppe and Le Havre and Normandy, since those sectors can be reached by enemy planes, and also because they lie within range of a large portion of fairing vehicles. Hitler was mad, crazy, but he wasn't stupid, and though losing the war would send him over the edge, at this moment in time, he could read a map and look at the moon just as well as any other officer. But not to be outdone, Big Hoss had the men at Stufa too, which ordered them to sleep in their battle dress and boots, weapons at the ready. On the opposing shoreline, the men of Rudder, now Jubilee, were recalled to come back together. But to keep things secret, there were many little reasons given to the men versus telling them the truth. Either way, the Allies assembled. Emotions ran high as the men began to guess what was really going on, namely something big, and they knew that soon they would know beyond doubt if they had what it took for combat. But as before, on August 16th, there was a 24-hour delay due to the weather forecast. But when Tuesday morning came, though the weather was still far from perfect, it was decided to greenlight this operation for that very evening. Thus, on Tuesday, August 18, 1942, men began to embark onto ships at Southampton, Portsmouth, Gosport, New Haven, and Shoreham. And only when all were aboard were the men told of their true destination, Dieppe. And Dickie, being Dickie, he made sure that American and Canadian reporters and cameramen had room aboard the various ships, to go along with the British newscasters. The one reporter to turn down the invitation was the Soviet correspondent. He believed this was a propaganda stunt versus a real second front, so decided to stay in London. At 8 p.m. August 18th, Commodore John Hughes Hallett sailed out on his flagship, HMS Kelp, with the entire naval force behind him, eastbound, out of the anti-submarine boom. The ships were in perfect formation and on time. Hopefully, the rest of the mission would be the same. Postscript, Private George Cook of No. 4 Commando wrote down his reaction to Mountbatten's pep talk. Quote, It was a very nice talk. He said he wished he was coming with us. 200 blokes thought, Well, we wish you were going instead of us. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So I'd like to say hello to some new members and those who donated, and then I have a special something at the end. So here we go. Members, the latest members who get two extra episodes a month. Let's see, there's Earl White from Sabinal, Texas. I probably said that wrong, Earl. I'm very sorry about that. Let's see here next. Thea Don Simeon from Cambridge, UK, and Nicholas is at Rugamer from Albany, Minnesota. So those are the latest members. Donations, there's uh, Andrew Fleming. Thank you very much, Andrew. Noel McManus, thank you, Noel. And then I got a special, well, I'm sure he considers it a special email from one Alex Atterbury. Atterbury, sorry about that, Alex. He wrote, and I'll just, it's a very short email. I'll just read it to you. 
He goes, I just bought you a drink because I appreciate the work you do. No strings attached. And yet, okay, Mr. Harris, you can survive VA without AC. You can Bangalore torpedo your way through a fallen tree. But I dare you to pronounce these Wisconsin place names at the end of an episode. So here we go, Alex, you sh- you wonderful person, you. So here we go. <laughs> Okonomowoke. <laughs> no, I didn't get close to that one. Weawagwe. No, Weawagwe. I can't say it. Um, Monk Wanago. Uh, Wanaki. Uh, Giannis Antico. <laughs> There's too many. There's not that many letters in the alphabet. Giannis, Giannis, probably Giannis. I don't know. Antico, Antitocompo. There. So I butchered that. I hope it was worth it to you. It wasn't for me, but you know I have a tradition for butchering names, and you know we all have our brand, and that's mine. So next time the actual fighting starts, we'll see how it goes. The Germans are reinforced. They're on high alert. They've got new Krupp weapons. And what do the British and the Allies have? Supposedly, the element of surprise. Take care, everyone.